The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the web. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity, From Victim to Victor, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hour, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, and many other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacypiracy. Hey, Mari, what's our show about today? Well, our show is about the boundaries of privacy harm. I saw this wonderful article by this fabulous privacy expert who happens to be an attorney up at Stanford, and I thought, we have to get him on our show. So let me tell you a little bit about Ryan Kahlo. Uh, Ryan Kahlo runs the Consumer Privacy Project at the Center for Internet and Society at Stanford University, a wonderful place that we love. And prior to joining the law school in 2008, uh, Ryan was an associate at Covington and Burling LLP, where he advised companies on issues of data security, big issue nowadays, privacy, and telecommunications. And in 2005 to 2006, he served as law clerk to the Honorable R. Guy Cole, Jr. of the United States Court of Appeals for the 6th District. And prior to law school, Kalo was an investigator of allegations of police misconduct in New York City. Uh, Ryan researches and he presents on the intersection of law and technology, obviously in privacy. And he works, his work has appeared in the New York Times, the San Francisco Chronicle, the Associated Press, the Wall Street Journal blog, uh, Smart Money, uh, Many, many national, local media, and obviously he has written some law for a few articles like the one that I just told you, The Boundaries of Privacy Harm. And he also serves on an av- uh, several advisory boards and privacy committees and program committees, including Computer Freedom Privacy 2010, the Future of Privacy Forum, and the National Robotics Week. He's written many, many uh, wonderful publications, so we're thrilled to have him. Thank you, Ryan, for joining us. Thanks for having me. Well, we want to congratulate you also on your new baby, your new addition to your home, and thank you for taking time out of your busy work schedule and baby schedule to join us. No problem. Thanks very much. Why don't you tell us about your role at Stanford? Sure. So I work for the Center for um, Internet and Society at Stanford Law School, um, and I run the Consumer Privacy Project. Um, and I have been doing that for a little time now. Um, and, uh, and the center uh, focuses on three areas. Uh, one of them is architecture and public policy, so that's things like uh, net neutrality. One of them is fair use in copyright, where we do a lot of uh, litigation, particularly defending people who are using copyrighted works uh, under fair use. And then finally, consumer privacy. Right. Why don't you explain what you mean by net neutrality to my audience? I know I know what it means, but there's a lot of people out there that really don't understand what that means. 
Absolutely. So I should say uh, this is a little outside my area of expertise, but I can give you the basic uh, strokes. So the idea is um, uh, applications on the Internet today, for the large part, um, run across the Internet in a way that's completely neutral. That is, um, it doesn't really matter if you're using one kind of transmission or another, if you're using, say, uh, file sharing peer-to-peer -peer or if you're doing something directly. Um, really, the, the network is built in a way that it doesn't really um, discriminate between kinds of traffic. Um, the concern over net neutrality is the concern over whether or not those that control the pipes, the Comcast of the world, uh, and of course there are many, many examples, um, whether they're able to make changes to the network that privilege some kinds of content and some kinds of, um, of applications over others. Um, so I'm not explaining this nearly as well as my faculty director, Barbara <laughs> Vanshevik, who has a new book called uh, Internet Architecture and Innovation, which is a wonderful book that I highly recommend from MIT Press that just goes into clear but very detailed explanation of the concept of, of innovation on the Internet and how the system architecture can make innovation more or less possible. Well, we'll have to have her on the show. You'll have to talk to her for me. She's fabulous. You should okay. definitely have her on the show. All yep. right, we'll do it. So let's talk about your consumer privacy project, though, because that, that is really what is interesting to me as a consumer advocate and a consumer privacy advocate. Tell us what kinds of things you're working on. Sure. So the mission of the Consumer Privacy Project is to help enhance consumer privacy, um, you know, both in terms of traditional advocacy at times, so filing an amicus brief um, here and there, uh, getting involved in policy discussions, but also we like to build tools from the ground up that we hope are helpful to consumers. And there's a couple of examples of that. One of them is uh, whatapp.org, which um, focuses on uh, the privacy and security of online and mobile apps. And another one is called privacons.org, which is a joint a collaboration with um, uh, government folks in, in Europe, with uh, 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 policy people at Google, um, and a couple others, um, and a, a designer that graduated from the Stanford D School. And what that is is aiming at trying to improve um, email privacy. So why don't you tell us a little bit more about these two? Like, where do you see what app? dot org going and tell us you know help us understand it a little bit more okay sure so whatapp.org is a is a crowdsourced and expert um, sourced uh, website and what it does is you go there and you submit an app that you're thinking about buying or you submit a, a multiple apps you're thinking about downloading um, and the hope is that one of the 20 30 experts that are using the site will actually take a look at it and kick the tires um, and tell you what they think about it from the perspective of privacy and data security. So they might say things like, oh, you know, gosh, this, this sends things unencrypted. If they're a security expert, they might say, I looked at the privacy policy, and you should really think twice about it. Um, and they provide ratings. Um, oh. But there's also other sources of information. So there's a wiki that people can use to describe the product. Uh, there's expert ratings. There's expert reviews. There's individual comments. And then there's also a spot for developer notes. So that's a spot where the developer of the app might be able to weigh in and we give them a dedicated spot and say, this is what we did to protect security, to protect privacy. And finally, we do an automatic news feed that runs the name of the app against recent um, uh, you know, blog and commentary and news about privacy and security related to that app. And so that hope, the hope is that it will be a one-stop shop eventually where consumers can go to see whether or not um, the app that they're about to download is, is consumer-friendly um, along those particular lines. 
one thing you'll notice is that many, many um, places that where you download apps and um, various magazines and the like, they actually do rate and review apps. But you'll notice that they almost never focus on privacy and security particularly. And so we're trying to fill a gap that we perceive uh, in consumer information around that specific, uh, a specific vector. Now, it, is there a cost for this for consumers? No, it's absolutely free. Um, and so right now it's in its beta stage. And um, we were very lucky to have been picked up by a number of different um, news outlets. And so we've had a lot of visitors to the website. You know, Associated Press covered it and a, and a bunch of others. Um, so we've had lots of visitors. And um, we have hundreds of apps. And we have dozens of experts and, and hundreds of users that, uh, that check in periodically. We'd really like to scale this up. And so our next step with whatapp.org is to probably partner with someone else um, and really scale this up. Instead of having hundreds of apps, we want to have you know, tens of thousands, and we want to automate some of this. Um, and so the hope is that eventually it will be a big, robust platform that everybody can go to. Right now it's more of a proof of concept. But as a proof of concept, it's, it's working extremely, extremely well. So it's whatapp.org, and anyone listening to this can go there. And before you download an app, an application um, on your computer, now does this also serve for like your phone, any kind of a, a device? Yeah. So right now we have it divided into multiple different platforms. So um, social networks is one. So you'll see like Facebook apps and things like that. And then you have browsers. So you'll see like plugins for Firefox and that kind of thing. And we also have a mobile. Uh, components, so the iPhone, Android, and that kind of thing. Um, you know, again, the chances are, I mean, we've tried to, to start with popular apps, so there's a good chance that, um, that uh, an app is there if it's real popular, um, less if it's, if it's a sort of more of a fringe app. Um, but I will tell you this, most every platform has been reviewed. So experts and users can review not just the individual apps, but as you, as you well understand, um, it is very much the platform, say the Facebook and their parameters and what they allow and what they do, that also determines the likelihood of whether an app will be secure and private, right? right. Um, and so we, we also review the platforms. And I think that there, actually, the value add is, is very clear. I mean, you can go there and see how different people have talked about different platforms and, and get a sense of, um, you know, how comfortable should you be if you happen to be using a particular platform downloading any old app. Um, and then the hope is that if the app is not there, then people will log in and submit it, and, and maybe someone will take an interest in it. So, so the purpose of this is to really help protect the privacy and security of people using their, their electronic devices or using their computer, that they don't download something that may basically expose them to some privacy risk or security risk, right? That's absolutely right. Um, if you look, there was a recent report uh, that came out that was looking at um, – at Android, the platform for uh, Google's platform. Um, and this is not to pick on, on Android at all. Um, I think that the reason that the researchers chose Android as a platform was, in fact, because it was open and transparent and they were able to do this. But what they found was that it, they looked at lots and lots of apps and they looked at a sample of just a few, and they found that just in a small sample, say 30, a large percentage were sending sensitive information like the user's phone number uh -huh. to a third-party server Wow. Without any business case. Ah. Okay, so if you can, your listeners can, can go and check this out. I think the name of the paper is called Taint Droid, and then there's, but there was some recent coverage about it um, out there at this point. And so, you know, uh, the point of the matter is, is that these apps, I mean, while they're wonderful, I mean, I, I think it's, 
apps and the app market is, a, is absolutely great development, and, and there are many, many uses that people can put these things to. I think it's wonderful. Um, I should also say that I think that a lot of companies are, are very responsible, and they're building apps in, in ways that are responsible, and they're making their platforms uh, in ways that are helpful to the consumer. Nevertheless, um, there are plenty of examples out there of these apps that just grab way more information that they need that are not built securely, um, that are transmitting information all over, um, and, uh, and there's no real good way for consumers to figure out uh, in advance, uh, or even once they download it, what is actually happening. And so whatapp.org is an attempt to begin to try to do that through the power of expert review and the power of crowdsourcing. Well, that's terrific, and especially since we're sitting here on the campus of the University of California, Irvine, where everybody is downloading apps all the time. Sure, yeah. You know, I mean, students are, are really into that. That's it's wonderful for their iPhone or wherever they are. They're downloading apps, and they're hearing about it from their friends, but then they don't realize what could happen to them. So I think the fact that you even have this website will bring up the bar because if people start going to that first before they download then those applications that are not secure or really do not protect the privacy of the individuals, uh, people aren't going to use them. And Ab so it's going to bring up the bar. Absolutely. I mean, that's one, you know, um, that's one really interesting facet here is that in order to promote e-commerce, including apps, that is in order to get people to really migrate online for their banking, for their purchases, which I would argue is probably helpful in most instances, Right? I mean, you want to be able to download right. cool apps. You want to be able to do a lot of these things online. The number one impediment is going to be trust. And fear. And fear, exactly. <laughs> and as you know extremely well, I mean, your work is, 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 is dedicated to this, dedicated right. to combating this. And, and I, I, I think in part probably in service of um, you're not trying to you know, scare people off the Internet, just the opposite. You're right. trying to make it a trusted environment so that people can actually engage safely. And that's, that's what whatapp.org is about. I mean, again... Um, you know, right now it's, it's at a proof-of-concept stage, and it needs to be scaled up, but that is absolutely on our radar and, and our next step. Well, that, that is really wonderful. I know that, um, you know, I have had uh, Senator Simidian from your area on my show several times, and we've always talked about, you know, you can't stop technology, and that isn't our intent. Technology is wonderful, and all these great apps are really um, exciting and fun and bring in all sorts of great experiences in our lives. But these companies should be responsible to build into the architecture of the application or the technology the protections of security and privacy right into it. I mean, they need to have that at a conscious level at the time that they're developing it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well said. I mean, um, you know, because of the way that um, Federal Trade Commission the Federal Trade Commission has interpreted Section 5 of the FTC Act for the lawyers. Um, adequate security is one of the important principles that they police. Um, but uh, they haven't done as good a job on this notion of making sure consumers are informed, because the chief way that we've tried to police that has been through privacy policies, which we know nobody reads. Uh, and, and nobody uh, understands. And nobody understands, precisely. Um, for all kinds of reasons. I mean, the average privacy policy is written at the college level, and that is not the average um, reading level. Right. It should be States. the sixth yeah. grade level, right? Well, something like that. I've heard sixth, seventh grade, yeah. Um, and then, you know, setting aside the fact that 14% um, of Americans are below basic in literacy. So, uh, you know, it's just, it, it's not, and even if you did read it and you did understand it, there's not enough incentive to compete. The privacy policies tend not to vary very much. 
Um, and so anyway, the, the point of the matter is, is that the notice system is, is not working very well. No. Um, and we need, um, we need something else. And, and especially with the online, uh, I'm sorry, with mobile, because even in mobile, I mean, you have a smaller screen. Right. It's even harder to do the kind of disclosure you could even do uh, for the very interested on, online. And so we need another way. And, yeah. uh, and, and this is sort of trying to step in that direction. You know what I was thinking? And again, I'm, I'm not a technologist, but I thought, wouldn't it be neat if you had on your computer to start out with like a little button that would automatically just, you know, um, you would automatically go whenever you're thinking of doing uh, downloading an app, this little thing would, would pop up with what app to kind of remind you to go there, you know, to click on that. I don't know if you have that at but that would be a reminder because some people get so excited about an application that they just download it without thinking. But if, if that was sitting there like, hey, you know, just check it out first, you know, I don't know if you have something like that. Well, absolutely. So a couple things. Um, one is that we built the ability into whatapp.org so that there are these rating badges that you get, these little ra- like basically uh, experts will answer questions about the security and privacy and openness of the, of the app. Yeah. Um, and it generates a little um, badge or a little rating badge. And that little rating badge can be exported, obviously voluntarily, um, to, a, to a, a, elsewhere on the Internet. So, I see. So, um, the, so the application, the company that makes the application could export that, that rating so that people would know it's safe, kind of like trustee does? Exactly. So these people would know how it had been rated, the same way that you, a restaurant might have a Yelp badge. Yeah, or like people, you know, the trustees that that people get are the Better Business Bureau on a website, you know. Oh yeah, trustee for instance is a is yeah. a great example. I, I saw some interesting, innovative stuff. Out of, I don't want to go too far afield from from what app, but I mean, um, I saw some innovative stuff recently out of trustee where they're trying to domesticate the behavioral advertising space. Right. And the way that they're doing that is very interesting. So. Um, they're creating a their seal at the bottom right. I wish it were at the upper left, frankly, between us, because um, that's the place people look first, right? So we always read websites, you know, top well, to bottom, left to right, and well, just write an email to friend. Right. Yeah, <laughs> you should write a, an email to friend Mayor. She's been on our show several times. I know as well. her. Yeah, I, yeah, I just will. Just write her an email and say, move it up to the upper left. I know she's <laughs> she's great, and she'd be very receptive to that. She so would I, be. I will, I will yeah. reach out to her. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but so anyway, but once you do find it and click on it, um, it's really great because what it does is it not only does it tell you some basics about what's going on, you know, how is it that your ads are being targeted to you on the website that you're on, um, but it also gives you some choices uh, about what you want to do. You know, do you want to maybe um, think about opting out or do you want to change some aspect of this? Um, and so it's a really neat tool and, uh, and, a, and a serious improvement over, over privacy policies alone. Yeah, so that that that's a great idea for you to kind of follow that that idea with what app as well. Sure, if sure, it, absolutely. So again, when we um, when we manage to get this thing so that it's at the proper scale, not the hundreds but the thousands of apps, um, then we will, and, and we're convinced it's it's robust enough. Then we were going to go out and uh, and have some discussions with big places where you can download things, right? Download.com or Apple Store or whatever it might be, Mozilla's. Um, um, plug in uh, a market um, and see if those companies will, will want to um, you know, add whatapp.org to their, to their offering in terms of information. Because the right. value add is obvious, right? I mean, right. if uh, they're not really reviewing these things for privacy and security exactly, and, and we are, and so um, it would be a nice synergy. Yeah, and I think it would be good because that's a value added that they'd be offering if say, oh, well, we've got this badge. We're, we're value added. We, we protect your privacy and your security. Sure. 
And I was kind of talking about on the other way, like, you know, for me to have to go somewhere without, it just would be neat if on my own computer, I would just always click on that it would come up automatically when, if I had something that it would come up automatically before I download an application. That's feasible too, of course, at the browser level. I mean, yeah, um, yeah, 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 that's what I was thinking. Cause then it just makes it really easy if I think both ways, having the company have their badge or their, you know, their seal of approval, so to speak. Now, what about if um, if they see that an app does it does not protect security and privacy? Then what happens? What is what is the the next step? Does uh, your does does your uh, what app do they contact the company and say, hey, you know? We've reviewed this, and it's not doing what it's supposed to be doing. You know, you're not a regulator, but just to kind of, like, let them know that people are interested and they're coming to you. I mean, I don't know if that's beyond the scope of what you're doing, but I just wondered. Well, that's a good question. Um, So we haven't done that. Uh, Companies have come to us before. Um, That is to say they noticed that their own app um, was – was uh, negatively reviewed, and they contacted us in order to assure us that they either were taking care of the problems that the users identified or that they had, and they had a new version. Um, and so we have some sense that there are companies looking at this product, at this um, uh, uh, service and responding, um, but we have not been proactive. That is, we have not gone out to, to, um, to companies. We, we do have a, on the front page, it hasn't been updated in a little while, but on the front page we have a penalty box and a featured app. Ah. And so that's an effort to highlight something that looks like it's been that is particularly good or particularly bad. Usually in the in the featured is some kind of privacy enhancing technology that is uh, a, a app the purpose of which is to give you better security or better privacy. Mm. That's generally what makes it into that. And then um, and then in the other one in the in the penalty box is generally something that uh, that users have, and experts have really trashed. Um, you know, again, this, it's not as though these are the opinions of, of the Center for Internet Society. This is a crowdsourced resource. And right, so, and experts reviewing, yeah. Correct. Yeah. No, that's terrific. Wow. You know, you should be in some of these magazines like PC Magazine. Have they talked to you? Have you done any articles? I, I don't remember if PC was one of the ones that I talked to um, at the time of our launch, um, but I spoke to a lot of folks. I mean, I think that the initial awareness is there, and I think that what we really need to do is um, – as I said, we were looking for partners to, to scale this up, yeah. at which point we will, um, we will definitely be contacting um, uh, folks again to explain some of the, some of the changes and the change in scale. Right, right. Well, I think you definitely need to speak with my friend Beth Givens at the Privacy Rights Clearinghouse because I think they would really appreciate that, and, and they could put up something on there as well. Yeah, you know, or you could put one of your articles if you know Beth. Yeah, she's fantastic. Yeah. Absolutely. She, she's really um, one of the organizing forces behind all of the California privacy advocates. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. She's been a good friend of mine for a long time, and she's been on my show four times. So. Wow, yeah, she's great. So we're, we're yeah, yeah, we, we, we're doing a presentation together. But anyway, um, I just want to, if, if you're listening or driving by or if you're on the net, I just want you to know who we're talking to. We're talking to Ryan Kahlo, who runs the Consumer Privacy Project at the Center for Internet and Society at Stanford University here in beautiful California. And you can learn more about him. You can actually go. Why don't you give that website for me right now? Sure. It's um, cyberlaw.stanford.edu. And give your Twitter account, too. 
Oh, and I, I do. I tweet uh, about privacy um, at uh, RCALO, so twitter.com slash RCALO. Yeah, and I think they definitely want to go and see what, what you're doing at the center. So now let's go back to the issue about uh, uh, org. Tell us about that. Right. So that's another project we have going on, which, which is a collaboration among a lot of different uh, interesting players. Um, and to see who exactly, you can go to privacons.org and uh, look at the about or people section. So basically the story there is, I mean, every one of us has a horror story about a time that we accidentally replied all or forwarded something that we shouldn't have or printed something out and left right. it on the printer. I mean, you know, <laughs> right. email is like one of the oldest technologies that we have, the digital sort of, you know, technologies that we have. It's been around for quite some time. Um, or you and, copy the wrong person or, oh, oh sure. gosh, you know, all these things. Yeah, it's, it's too fast. Time. It's too fast. It's Way too, too fast. fast, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah no, I mean, it's amazing. Um, and, and, and almost nobody I talk to has not had that happen to them. Right. And, and, <laughs> yeah, you know, and so this is a universal problem. It's been around forever, and we just haven't done anything interesting to try to solve it. And so this, this is, what, whereas whatapp.org is focused on some on something cutting edge and new and trying to trying to uh, help mitigate a problem that is really even burgeoning today. Uh, uh, org is, is identifying an old problem, and, and that is um, email carelessness and what, what it does to privacy. And so what Privacons does simply is we had a professional designer come up with a set of icons that you can affix to your email that signal to people um, what they should be doing with the email. So for instance, it might say, read but don't print, or internal use only, or don't forward, or it might say, please share. Right. right. Um, and it's not that it's hardwired. It's not forced. Uh, that is, you can, at the end of the day, if you get something that you want to, you're a whistleblower and you want to forward it, uh, you can do it, if, uh, even if it says internal use only, or uh, God forbid you should get something that you think is dangerous and, and threatening in some way, then you'll be able to, to forward that. Um, so the idea is not to hard code this stuff. Um, it doesn't inhibit you, but it just gives you a warning, right? But it gives you a sense of what people are doing, and and, and it does and it does so importantly, very prominently. So it, 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 you know, it's a very obvious icon. It's up at the top left corner of a of an email. Um, you can see a demo of it uh, on on privacons.org. Um, and uh, and again, the idea is like sort of this old problem that that people do, and trying to mitigate email carelessness. Um, I should say the sort of intellectual house for this, um, the where we came up with the idea in essence, are a couple of interesting ideas by, uh, first of all, Jonathan Zittrain. Oh, I know him. He was at my show too. Oh, great! Yeah, <laughs> he's the best. Um, yeah. And, he's, and so he has this notion of, of code-backed norms, and this is the idea that you might use. Um, technology in order to facilitate better s- signaling among people, right? So he wants to use technology in order to um, to uh, improve privacy through these kinds of ideas. And so um, that's one that's one place that this idea occurs. Um, so this can be thought of as a as a kind of um, Zitrain uh, uh, code back norm idea. Another one is there's a wonderful paper by Lauren Gelman, um, who uh, you should also I know who she is. Yeah, yeah. University of Michigan, right? Um, Wasn't she from Michigan? Well, uh, no, actually, Lauren um, was uh, oh. at the Center for Internet Society. Oh, that's right. Okay, you're she, right. And she actually founded the Consumer Privacy Project. Okay, okay. Um, and so uh, um, before I got there. And so um, basically, uh, Lauren's paper is called Blurry Edge Social Networks, and it's in, I want to say, Boston College or Boston University Law Review. Um, and basically what it talks about is 
how do you use um, signaling for for user generated content and or so how, you know can you do things like um, have something on your blog post that explains that you only want a certain kind of person to read it or, or that it's okay to read it but not to, to reproduce it and these, these kinds of things it's sort of like a creative commons for, for privacy hmm. um, and, uh, and and in addition to being a fascinating discussion of, of the nature of the web it also has some really novel solutions for privacy so I recommend Lauren's um, I recommend Lauren's paper as well, um, but anyway, so it grows out of that that same idea of let's use norms and let's let's use technology to to make social signaling better um, in order to domesticate old problems. How about the issue that people put too much information in an email? Like uh, sometimes someone will write me an email and they say, "Oh, Mari, I became the victim of identity theft, and I here's my social security number." Can you help me? You know, Whoa, I yeah. mean, you know what I mean. I'll see this, and I'm going. Now I know why you became the victim of identity theft. I mean, you know, <laughs> I just, you know, or, or or with my own clients that I have sensitive data on them. You know, I have taught everybody how to at least use WinZip for 250-bit encryption. Do you sure. know what I mean? Sure. So, I mean, anyone that deals with me, I teach them how to do it. But a lot of people send me emails that have very sensitive information, whether it's financial information or personal information or embarrassing information. I mean, what about that part of the privacy aspects? I think it's extraordinarily important. So, so one, of the, one of the chief concerns of privacy online is the fact that you're being tracked and you don't realize it. But right. another equally important component of privacy online or, or over email is the fact that people don't appreciate the consequences of, of their actions, of sending something, of posting something. Right. right you, know this, right. you know this better than anybody. Yeah. Um, I think there's innovative work there being done by the folks at Carnegie Mellon. So I'm thinking of Lori Craner and Alessandro Acquisti. And uh, they're, they're trying to build tools that help people understand and internalize the consequences of what they're posting. Um, one very interesting idea that I wish were mine, but it's not. Um, I think it's Alessandro's, actually. But it could be Lori's. Um, but anyway, it's out of Carnegie Mellon. And the idea is um, when someone puts a, a, a piece of information out there, like their date of birth, the idea is that this tool could automatically make a guess about what their Social Security number is. Right. This must right. be a Quisti. Yeah, this is a Quisti. So the idea yeah, is Quisti. If you know where somebody lives, where they were born, and their date of birth, then you can, yes, you can make predictions about their social security number, right? Right, exactly. So this would, this would sit on top of, say, a Facebook page. And when people put in a key piece of information, it would look at all the information that they have on the page and it would make guesses like things about their social security number in an effort to dramatize the fact that information can be ag- aggregated in ways that ends up unlocking um, things you don't want unlocked. So what do you mean? Like it would pop up and say, is this your social security number? We think your social security number might be one of these. Oh. And how, how do we do this? And then you can read about, about how that's done, right? So, right. Um, another uh, really interesting sort of intellectual house for this stuff is, is Paul Ohm uh, at Colorado, um, who wrote uh, The Failed Promise of Anonymization. I can't, I can't remember if that's the exact title, but he wrote a wonderful uh, law review article about how anonymization ends up not being as, as, as robust and as helpful to people as you might think. Um, and so people think they're doing something that's anonymous, and then it ends up that, uh, that it can be re-identified. And in fact, if you, according to Paul, if you, if you look at um, a lot of statutes, uh, you'll see that they have exceptions for an, an, an anonymous information. Uh, but then he points to work by Arvind and, and one, of our, um, one of our affiliates, 
um, has done work on uh, Netflix. Remember when Netflix had yes. that contest and um, it turned out that it was possible to sort of figure out who who people were uh-huh. uh, on the basis of uh, of these sort of Gresham algorithms. He did that work, and so you know the point of the matter is is that even things that appear to be anonymous often often are not as anonymous as you might think. Right, and the New York Times did a whole big thing on that too. People that were buying things, I mean, and they thought that they were doing things anonymously, that there were whole profiles on them that people say, oh no, we don't collect this to for individualization, but then they could figure out who somebody was. So, oh wow, yeah. I mean, yeah. I remember when the Times a few years ago did. Um, some incredible investigative reporting. So AOL released for research purposes a bunch of its uh, site, its search terms, and they were pegged to unique identifiers but not to people. And so they were thought to be anonymous. And it took right. New York Times all of three days to identify a couple of people and to do a story about people that they found through their search terms. Right. People tend to search for their, like, their neighborhood and right. you know, themselves. And, yeah. mm-hmm. Right. So uh, are you guys doing anything on anonymity as well or what? We are not doing anything on anonymity. Okay. We are not. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, let me just introduce you again because you're fascinating, and I, I love your voice, by the way. It's great <laughs> for radio. Um, we are speaking with Ryan Kahlo, who runs the Consumer Privacy Project at the Center for Internet and Society up in beautiful Stanford University. And he has got a, a blog, and why don't you give that again, what your blog is? Sure. It's uh, cyberlaw.stanford.edu. And he's got Twitter. Give that, too. Um, R-C-A-L-O. Okay, and you're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. You're also listening to Privacy Piracy. And you can learn more about our wonderful guests like Ryan and see his picture and his bio and link to his website at KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy. So let me ask you something. Um, with Again, with this this. Uh, Privacons.org. That's that's one of you the projects from from your center, correct? It is. Mm-hmm. And um, so, what about advocacy? Do you guys actually do real advocacy for privacy? Do you take on cases? What what do you do over there? So, um, w- when it comes to some of the other things we work on, like um, net neutrality that I mentioned and fair use, uh, the center does a lot more straightforward. Uh, I don't know if it's ad- advocacy precisely, but it's certainly education. Um, so my faculty director will testify before the Federal Communications Commission uh, and elsewhere about how the best way it is to build the Internet in a way that preserves uh, innovation and freedom and, and of speech and the like. Um, then with respect to fair use, then what we're doing is absolutely advocacy in the sense that um, we're defending people's rights to use copyright copyrighted material on the basis of the fair use defense. Um, and so uh, uh, we'll defend artists or scholars who are trying to work with materials that are copyrighted. Um, mm-hmm. But then with the privacy, we haven't done much of it, although we have done a couple things. Um, so we participate in policy discussions. So I will talk to the FTC um, uh, in, and, uh, and, and enter into all kinds of discussions about what the best thing is and serve on advisory committees and things like that in order to advance the ball. Um, but, uh, but one thing we did that was interesting is we filed an amicus brief and a Ninth Circuit case um, involving email uh, and how much protection it gets under the law. And we filed a technological brief on behalf of David Clark and David Reed, who were two of the people who um, built some of the original protocols for the Internet. Hmm. Um, and so they're, they're, they were technologists who, who were formative in, in building the Internet as it, as it stands today. Um, 
and, and we argued on their behalf um, that email was uh, designed in a particular way that interacted uncertainly with uh, federal um, Electronic Communications Privacy Act, federal privacy law around electronic communications. And so we did get in the mix there um, in the sense that we, we helped them file an amicus brief. Um, but a lot of what we do really is centered around um, you know, building tools, uh, getting involved in policy discussions, uh, education, and also obviously we do research. Yeah. You know, I was really impressed with your with your article, your law review article, The Boundaries of Privacy Harm. So can we kind of switch gear and talk about privacy harm? Because that's a huge issue on cases that in which I'm an expert witness, whether there's a security breach, whether there is, even if someone hasn't become a victim of identity theft yet, has there been a harm? You know, we've seen that over in Congress saying, no, there isn't. There's been other issues um, with FACTA where, you know, the expiration date was exposed and, you know, is, is, is that a privacy harm if the expiration date isn't really even used as an exact match? So, you know, there's all these issues. So why don't you kind of talk to us about how you define privacy harm? Sure. So, so privacy harm is one of these things that um, is, turns out to be really, really important uh, for all the reasons you described. Uh, but surprisingly, there just hasn't been that much discussion of exactly what privacy harm is. That, that's not to say there's been no discussion. Um, in particular, Daniel Solov has, has looked at privacy, what he calls privacy problems, in great detail in a wonderful law review article, The Taxonomy of, of, of Privacy, and also in his, in his wonderful book, Understanding Privacy, and, and elsewhere. Uh, Dan has, has explored these issues. Um, and he's been on our show several times as well. <laughs> sure, I, I don't doubt it. Yeah, I mean, Dan Solov is, is the person that if you wanted to get into privacy, what you'd do is you'd read everything that Dan ever wrote. Right, right. <laughs> um, I mean, because he's, he's really that good. Um, right. So, so, but in any event, um, you know, people have looked at this, but, but we haven't looked at it in sufficient detail. And so what I said about doing was, you know, as a, really as an analytic and as a, as a case law matter, um, it, what are we talking about, really, when we're talking about privacy harm? And, and in examining privacy harm, I found that I felt that most instances of privacy harm can fall into just two categories, which I call the subjective category of privacy harm and the objective category of privacy harm. And these are distinct concepts, but they're related in a way that I can uh, get into in a moment. But the subjective privacy harm are the perception of unwanted observation. Mm-hmm. Right, so this is when someone is watching you and you don't want them to. When you discover that landlords are listening in on their tenants uh, or something, when you um, are being tracked and you don't and you and you don't want to be. These are all these feelings of unease right. that we get. Right, um, I think a very good example is when you find out that there's been a data breach. Um, I think that that's a very serious subjective privacy harm, and it's one that we ought to give credence to, since we give credence to such harms in other contexts. Um, the objective category of privacy harm is when information is actually used against you. So that's the unanticipated or coerced uh, use of information about a person against that person. So these are things like identity theft. Mm-hmm. Um, these are things like being turned down for a job on the basis of some information that the employer, potential employer should not have had. Right. Um, you know, it's many, many, but it also includes things like this is someone forming a negative a judgment about you by something that they found out about you. Um, so these are all these all these harms that are, that result from people's personal information. Now, I don't mean personally identifiable information in the statutory sense. Um, P 
PII. I mean information about you. Um, that's important because obviously lots and lots of um, things in the world happen on the basis of general information, right? You might, for instance, you might know that you know beautiful images of beautiful people sell cars as a general matter, and then uh, uh, sell cars to people on the basis of of that by showing a beautiful person in the car. Uh, that is different from finding out that this particular person likes a particular kind of person or a particular kind of car, and then using that to target them. That's a, this, this, this distinct, analytically distinct idea. The other thing, too, is that it has to be unanticipated because um, there are lots of times when information gets used, but we perfectly understand it. And, f and maybe we don't even really like it, but we, we, we do it as a, as a trade-off. So, for instance, I want to enter the sweepstakes, and I realize that it's going to mean that I'm going to get some additional email marketing, um, but, and I don't really want that, but I want to enter the sweepstakes, and so I knowingly enter into an agreement and I send my information and it gets used. That's not what I mean either. Um, and then finally, I, I say it's uncoerced because there are also situations where somebody might know well exactly how the information is going to be used against them, uh, and, uh, and that's why they don't want to give it up, but then they have to anyway, and that's a coerced setting. And so one example of that is they forced blood tests for someone who's been driving under the influence, right? There, the government is taking blood samples you don't want them to, um, and you know how it's going to be used, uh, but they do it anyway. Right. Because it turns out that the Fifth Amendment doesn't actually apply. In this, it's a long story. But, but you know, so that's, that's the conditions. So then um, I think that most every privacy harm fits into one of these two categories, and I think there's some advantages to thinking about them that way. So why don't you talk about the, the link between the two of those? Then? Oh, right. So, so even though they're very distinct, um, I think that they're importantly related. Um, I think that they're related in the same way as assault and battery are related. So a battery is unwanted physical touching, right? I mean, everyone knows mm -hmm. the elements of, of battery. Um, assault is the anticipation right. of that. Um, and it's a distinct tort with its own elements. Uh, and one can occur without the other. Right. So similarly, I think of subjective privacy harm as being anticipation of objective privacy harm. In other words, I believe that one of the chief reasons that we're worried when we hear about the security breach and then it causes us angst, is the concern that that information will ultimately be used against us. Right. Um, to to commit some, identity theft or some other kind of harm, right. Exactly, right. So when, when something, um, you know, and sometimes we don't quite know what it might be. So maybe someone puts a photo up of us on Facebook and tags us in a photo and the photo looks compromising in some way because we're holding a alcoholic beverage and we're under age or something like that. Right, right? and then we're not going to get a job. Exactly. So we just don't mm -hmm. know what it is, but that's what makes us nervous about it. It's this adverse action. Right. And so they're related in the same way as assault and battery, on, on my view. Now, uh, one thing I should say is there are some things that on this, in this objective category, like a revulsion to being seen naked or something like that, mm -hmm. that seem to be really physical and reflexive. And so it's not a perfect match. But I think that the bulk of instances when we're worried about these subjective privacy arms our anticipations. And so my curiosity has always been, you know, why allow people to recover for uh, something like um, an anticipation of battery 
or, or many other things where we have these psychological harms at issue. Or Why an anticipation not? of getting some dreaded disease, like if you're exposed to something, right? Sure, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Or, or okay. asbestos, you know, those asbestos cases are considered a harm, right, in the that, courts. That's a fantastic example, one, one I wish I had used. Yeah, asbestos <laughs> is another one, right? Well, we're brainstorming together. That's Good. okay. Good. I wish that this weren't already at the printer, but um, <laughs> but yeah, but th- that's a good example too. There are many contexts on the, in the law. I mean, I, and I can go on. I mean, so uh, this has always been interesting to me. But there are instances where you can recover from something that objectively is just not harmful to you. One example is um, there have been cases where um, a factory or some other processing plant or something will admit a kind of noxious. Uh, I'm sorry, a, a, like a a colored smoke or something mm-hmm. that will then flow over someone else's land. And they and the people whose land um, that the smoke has run over have been able to sue, even where the, where the polluter, let's say, has been able to show that this is harmless steam. It happens to be green because that's the, what we're burning or something like that. But this is absolutely harmless. Here's you know, a dozen reports saying that. Nevertheless, people will still be able to recover. Why? Because it's creepy to have green smoke roll over your your yeah. land, right? So are, they, I mean, are, they, so, are, they, are they recovering emotional distress? Or? Right, exactly. They're they're recovering for the emotional impact that this has, and you know, and obviously some de minimis trespass at issue there. But but the point of the matter is, or another example is, um, if you're going to put a nuclear power plant in some place, you need to do a psychological impact assessment. Quite apart from what the damage is going to be, the environment and the health of people nearby, you need to figure out how it feels to people. Right. So why don't we do that with privacy, I guess? And and it makes me... no, I never totally understood that, and I and I always wanted there to be a distinct category that was analytically, uh, that was coherent and and and. Well, don't you think that that part of it is that when we're talking about information, we're talking about huge companies that are collecting this? Yeah, the government too. But especially with huge companies and banks that are very influential in Congress, and so they're getting, they're they're basically you know kind of influencing this. It's it's kind of I think it's more political than it is legal. Is mm-hmm. that's my perspective from from looking at this and having been an expert on some of these cases where I would say where, where I analogized to the asbestos issue when somebody is really worried about becoming a victim of identity theft if something was still, if all their information, including their social security number, their health records, their medical records, their financial records, everything was stolen. And then there's, well, there, you know, it's a security breach. There's, there's uh, nothing has happened yet. So there is no recovery. Well, I really think it's political. You know, you, you may be right. I mean, so I'm using all of these things uh, as analogies. I, I don't mean to say that, um, that uh, information harms like these are, are akin to asbestos. That is, I, I, you know, so I'm, I'm not sure that I have a way It may of, not be uh, as bad, you know. You, you may not be. I mean, I, yeah, I'm just not I sure. Mean, I mean, I, I, the truth of the matter is, is I haven't done the kinds of studies I would need to sort of conclude that. Um, so I'm using it as an analogy. Um, you know, that said, um, um, I'm not really sure exactly what it is that, um, that motivates courts to, to look the other way when it comes to these kinds of harms. I mean, it, it, it's, it's, it's surprising in a sense, right? Because if you look back at, um, at uh, 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 the Warren Brandeis uh, right to privacy, yeah. where the, the, really the genesis in, in many ways of, of uh, modern um, privacy law in the United States, um, you know, that's what they were very much concerned about, was this, these subjective categories. They were very concerned about 
Um, they, they, you know, they, they talked about these kinds of harms that were psychological as being worse than anything that you could do to your body, right? And so, right. Um, you know, I, I'm not sure. And, and, and as to the political motivations, um, I don't know what it is. It's interesting. Um, I, I think it's a factor. I think it is. And also you're talking about information privacy rather than other types of privacy where somebody's looking at you, you know, where you do you have that reasonable expectation of privacy uh, where somebody's looking at you. It's like that that I got a call from um, from a New York uh, journalist the other day about this uh, kid. I don't know if you read about it in the paper because I didn't read it yet here, but um, he was apparently somebody set up a video and, and they um, they videoed him having sex and this was transported to everybody in the schools you know it was like it went into everybody in, on campus at this university and he committed suicide right so uh, i did read about that yeah so that was a tragic thing um, tragic horrible I, I think it was in um in new york DC somewhere area, right? maybe but but it, 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 oh no you're right in new york in the, the new york area because yeah, that's when they called me yeah he jumped off the george washington bridge yeah so um there, yeah exactly there what happened was that um this is a terrible thing uh was that uh his roommate apparently set up all, this, this all cam, allegedly yeah. criminal actions here. So we'd be really careful. But you know, apparently, uh, the, this, uh, or according to allegations, this this person set up like an iChat thing and then t- used Twitter to broadcast right. everybody that this was happening and that they could tune in. Uh, right. And upon learning of it, the individual uh, yes. suicide is, yes. is the story. Yeah, no, I mean it's a it's an awful. I mean those thing. kind those are those are like a physical privacy invasion, you know, as opposed to when people think of your information privacy. And I think it's it's kind of a different mindset in our country also because we don't look at, and I don't mean we, you and I, but society doesn't seem to, at least the corporations don't seem to see that the information belongs to us, it kind of belongs to them once they collect it. And as opposed to like the European Union. So I think there's kind of a whole mindset that this inform it's information privacy. So it doesn't have as high a value to us. And I don't mean and I don't believe that, but I think that's kind of where society is. That could be. I mean, and so for, to bolster your case uh, further, um, you know, there was a bunch of uh, uh, insurance cases years ago uh, where people would where companies su- suffered massive data loss and uh, insurance companies wouldn't pay out uh, on the basis that the data loss was intangible. And that, requ- that therefore requiring companies who are interested in insuring data loss to, to take out distinct standalone insurance on data loss that is, that is expensive and, and, and the like. Um, and so, uh, uh, yeah, there's some reasons. For some reason, we seem to not really be treating the information running around as being um, uh, as somehow being important as as some kind of physical watching as took place in this tragic example in New York. Right. Um, you know, uh, to me, there there are there is a lot of overlap. That is, I mean, I don't necessarily draw distinctions between um, in terms of of privacy harm between a direct observation and the flow of information or... Or an uh, insidious observation. Or an insidious <laughs> observation. Yeah, I mean, so, yeah, I mean yeah. so, for instance, I mean, you know, um, if, if you're living in, in some um, dictatorship and a very small piece of information, namely that you're a Jew or a Serb or, 
whatever it is, right? Right, right. Um, And that that piece of information gets transferred uh, over email or whatever it might be, um, or or, or ends up in a database someplace. Um, What I really care about is the horrendous physical consequences of that, right? And so, you know, the fact here that that, that direct observation, um, mediated observation, I suppose, led someone to commit suicide, um, to me, that's not what's important from the perspective of privacy harm. And I think you agree. You're you're saying it's interesting how we privilege one or the other. But I mean, yeah, it's about the consequence. It's about the severity of the adverse consequence, not about the flavor of the observation, right? I mean, um, and yet the law does seem to draw a distinction. We, we tend to be very quick and, and thorough in our punishment of direct observation and, and, and lax in our, in our punishment of, um, of the kinds of, uh, of observations that are mediated and that are, that are information flow related. So I, I completely agree with you. Um, I think the issue, of, let's sort of take this on, but I think the issue of corporate responsibility is a really tough one for a lot of reasons. But I will say this. Um, I don't, I don't think that platforms should be responsible for the terrible things that users do. So, for instance, I don't think that iChat or Twitter should be held responsible for um, the fact that these terrible roommates apparently um, right. uh, invaded this man's privacy. Um, on the other hand, uh, I think that websites uh, having so much traffic and, and so much power and deriving so much utility and value from, from their consumer base ought to be more proactive about protecting people. Right, and so um, you know, with with what's the line from Spider-Man? Right, with great power comes great responsibility. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so, uh, as a matter of corporate responsibility, not a matter of law, um, I think that uh, corporations ought to be really stepping it up and trying to. I mean, they have all kinds of amazing information about us. Um, I wish they would use that information to be proactive um, about uh, about protecting our privacy. I'll, I'll give you one example. So imagine that you set you end up uploading a bunch of stuff on Facebook, uh, just to use the you know, company of the moment, um, and, uh, and while well, you're in college. And it's really compromising stuff. And, you, you know, and when you graduate from college, um, you, know, you, you, you don't read the recent Microsoft study that says that uh, some majority of employers will look at social media and make adverse con- you know, decisions on the basis of it. Um, you know, Facebook presumably knows things like the fact that you're graduating, that you're changing phases in life. Right, and, when, and it will use that information to advertise you. I'm not saying this particular information, but for instance, if you change your status from single to married or vice versa, your ads will change. If you enter your gender, your ads will change. These informations are used in ways to target ads and sometimes in very sophisticated. Why doesn't Facebook use the fact of graduation as an opportunity to prompt you, hey, this is what people can see on your profile. Yeah, get rid of it face. right now. You know what I mean? Not, and, and not, not Before even you apply for like, get rid of it, but just... Hey, you, are you aware that this is what people can see? Right. Because people don't realize this kind of right. thing. Right. Another example is um. <laughs> sorry to yeah, ramble, but, but, but before you go is, to that job interview. <laughs> yeah, exactly. When you go to that, this is what they can see uh, on a site, and and you know, little things like that. I wish companies would be more were more proactive. I guess I guess we're just we're going to have to depend on you and and your center <laughs> to be proactive to educate people. You know, I mean, it's interesting. I am a fellow for the Poneman Institute, which really very much promotes responsible information handling with with corporations and 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 trying to have them step up to the plate and do the value added for those companies that that belong and belong to the rim console. And so those are the kinds of things that 
that they do look at, but I think it should be a value added. I think that 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 should you know privacy is good for business mm-hmm. and and so I think if somehow what what you're doing and the things you're writing about, I think that will help companies to see that hey, if we do step up, that's a value added and if they and they could somehow see it as a profit to do that, that people will go to that company because they do trust them because it is a it is a trusted uh, company that will protect their information. I, th- I think that's good for profit. Yeah, I mean, there's a wonderful resource by um, ACLU of Northern California, this is Nikki Ozer and um, Chris Conley and that, and, and that group, um, that's called um, Privacy and Free Speech, It's Good for Business. And, and what's great about it is, you know, it's a, it's a, I think it's, a, it's very much true. And what they do is they give all these examples of times when companies were proactive about privacy and free speech and it ended up rewarding them, and then also examples where they weren't, and it ended up harming them. And so I like the resource a lot because it gives these concrete examples of each. Um, you know, I like your idea of, like, whatapp.org, and I'm thinking, you know, for one of your other projects, what you could do would be do something like this, you know, about uh, whatcompany.org, you know, and mm-hmm. how kind of when people want to do something with a particular company, like maybe they would come to you first and say, you know, should I really share this information with this company or should I go to that company or should I go to this school or should I go to that school or some school? You know what I'm saying? You could end end up doing something very similarly in the protection of privacy, even different from what trustee does. You know, trustee talks about the websites, but not really about the overall privacy practices, I don't think. Uh, that's very interesting. Um, that's right. I mean, so trustee, what, what they do obviously is, is, as you said, they 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 vet companies, and then the company may only display their their seal if they if they've gone through the trustee right. vetting process. Um, but it doesn't go as deep as like what what you know really talking about the whole company and what they do, the kinds of things that they do. Yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I actually actually like to know more about their process. But um, I was going to say, there's a overall, I agree with you. I mean, there's a couple of groups like. Um, Jeremy Jin has this great product, SiteJabber.com. SiteJabber is like uh, where you get to talk about websites, including um, privacy and security, if you're inclined. Um, so you can find out about a website before you go to it. There's another one um, out of Europe called Web of Trust um, that has millions of users and, and similarly vets. But it is focused on what's going on with this website, just as what app is focused on what's going on with this app. Um, it would be neat to have a report or a website dedicated to sort of um, you know, the whole company. I mean, sometimes I f- feel like it'd be really difficult, though, to... Um... I'm thinking like LifeLock. <laughs> but yeah. you know what? We're almost out of time. Oh, I want to have you back again. And, you know, I really... One thing before we leave, I really wanted to talk to you that maybe we can do offline about the background checks and what I'm going through with so many of my clients with these background checks that are either terribly erroneous or identity theft and, and how these information brokers really don't have any oversight. So we have to talk about that in the near future and maybe have your your uh, wonderful program over there at the Consumer Privacy Project at the Center for Internet and Society, if, if you could do something to help us with that. But I want to thank you, Ryan Cato. Kalo, you're wonderful. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. And we'll, we'll have you back again. Thank you so much. Great to talk to you. All right, you too. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Monday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. right here on KUCI. And also 
visit our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. There you can see pictures of our upcoming guests. You can look at their bios, jump over to their website and see what, what they're doing. And of course, you can listen to archived interviews, download podcasts, and write us emails about what you're worried about in the information age. Thanks. Stay private. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.